for those of you that are journaling, I'll give you a few things to note this morning. Last week, I went ahead and gave you the outline uh, and divided uh, 1 John into sections, so uh, we don't have to take any time for that. Let's get right to it. Let me start by asking a few questions, get your your mind working uh, towards some solutions this morning. What is our answer, as Christians, what is our answer to those who deny that Jesus was crucified and rose again. You should be thinking about your answer to that and how you would deal with a coworker, a family member, a friend. You're having a conversation. They say, you know, I don't, even, I don't really know about that. I don't know that Jesus died and rose again, and, and I'm not sure that you know about that. And they, you begin to have that exchange. What is your answer to that? Where would you go in the Scripture? What would you say to them? How would you articulate your, your position? Further... What is our answer to those who say that sin is not a reality? This is a modern belief now. This is something very prevalent in our modern world. The people that we are having conversations with every day just say, you know, that absolute right and absolute wrong, that, that sin word you're using, that's not really, not really a thing. Uh, you do what you do, I do what I do, and, and, and we're, we're all able to make our own choices or one's not really inherently right or wrong, what's your answer to those who would deny the reality of sin? What what is our answer? It's a little more personal question. To our own Christian conscience when we sin. How do you deal with your own conscience as a follower of Christ when you know that you have sinned? How are you living with yourself? How is this affecting you emotionally? How's this affecting your health? How's this affecting your relationship with not only with God but with other other people, uh, your family members or other other believers? Let me, let me articulate that same question a different way. How can we be sure that God has forgiven us and that He's not really mad at us? How do you know that? Well, those are some very serious questions that we all have to deal with. Uh, and you may deal with all of them in one week. Who knows? I mean, this is real life. Uh, fortunately, this morning, you're just about to find the answers to those questions because the answers to those questions are all found in 1 John chapter number 1. Let me read. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. For the journalers, let me help you. Underline the first word, that, and underline the last words, the word of life. Whatever John's talking about, it's that. (laughs) That which. It is a thing, then he calls a few words later, the word of life. It appears to be, at first glance, an inanimate object, like a Bible, the word of life. That which, a testimony, a record of some kind. It's not really clear what he's talking about. Let me further help you by getting your attention down to these action words. Look at these verbs we're seeing. Heard, seen, looked upon, touched. Now, let's deal with the whole whole verse. It's not immediately obvious when John opens the real message that he has for the churches that the that which he's talking about, the word of life he's talking about, it's not clear what it is, and it's certainly not clear who 
it might be if it is actually a who. Now, that same pattern, don't be distressed, the same pattern is what we see in the Gospel of John. And that's where I told you there were a lot of similarities in the writing. In the Gospel of John, watch how the Gospel of John starts. John 1, 1, the Gospel, not the letter. In the beginning was the Word. That doesn't appear to be a person. That's a book. That's a word. That's a testimony. That's a something written. That's a revelation. That's something articulated, a testimony. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But if you keep reading John's Gospel, by the time you get to verse 14, it has become crystal clear that the Word is actually a person. Listen to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and lived, dwelt among us, lived among us, and we have seen His glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now it's clear. In the beginning was the Word. John says the Word is a person and the person is called Jesus Christ. He's the Son of God who came to live with us as a man. Now it's clear. Now let's go back to John's Letter, watch him follow a very similar pattern as this. So John is saying, in the same way the Word turned out to be Jesus of Nazareth, that Jesus of Nazareth is both a historical and a spiritual reality. He's a historical figure. You can find him in the history books. Not talking the Bible right now. You find him in the secular. He really lived. It's a man who really lived. He is both a historical and a spiritual figure. Now, John, remember, is writing First John, the letters, the epistles of John, to protect and encourage his disciples. Why? Because false teachers have separated from the congregations, from the churches, And those false teachers are pulling people away from the truth. And they're telling people false teachings about Jesus Christ. And they were, we don't know with specificity, but there's some things alluded to where we can get some pretty good idea. They were either teaching that Jesus was God, but not a real human in a body. He appeared kind of like a ghost would appear. And he looked like a human, but he really wasn't flesh and blood He was God, but not man. Or they were teaching that he was a man who died, but he didn't actually rise from the dead because men don't rise from the dead. And there was a third false teaching, and that is he was human, real human. He just wasn't the son of God. That was just some fantastic claim that his followers put on him. That he, you know, he was just a man, just a carpenter from Galilee, but his followers said he's the son of God. So, All of these false teachings were circulating and it was really pulling people uh, into different camps and it was fracturing the church and then they were mistreating each other and they were saying, if you're not in my group, then I can't have fellowship. If you're not in my group, I won't even give you a cup of water if you're traveling down a dusty road. And they started mistreating each other and they started uh, hurting the body of Christ. So John's right now to protect his, his people and to do it, John begins to say to them, I want to present to you eyewitness testimony as to the authenticity of Jesus Christ. And he starts using eyewitness verbs like you might hear in a court of law. I saw, I heard, I touched, I was there. 
this is what happened. I'm giving testimony as an eyewitness. Now, I don't know who these jack wagons are that are splitting the church and teaching you false things about Jesus didn't rise from the dead or Jesus wasn't a man. And you can believe them or not believe them, but they weren't there. That's a big difference. (laughs) They weren't there. I was there. I ate with him. We slept in the same house. We drank out of the same cup. We rode on the same boat. I mean, I was there when he was crucified, standing next to his mother, and we watched his life go out of his body. He was buried. We saw it. I was th- So an eyewitness is a powerful thing. And I don't want you to go lightly over this. It's a powerful thing still today in the United States of America. Trust me, if you're ever involved in a court case and there's eyewitnesses, that's going to turn the whole tide of the trial. If two eyewitnesses show up and they say the same story in a court of law and they do a written deposition and they put their hand up and swear to tell the truth and their testimony says, well, I saw it all. I mean, I saw it all. Jason was there, and here's what happened, and here's how it went down, and he pulled into the intersection, and he calls the prop. You're in trouble because eyewitness testimony will stand. It will carry the law in a court of law. Now, this is what John's saying. People can say anything, but I'd put my hand on a Bible because I was there, and I can tell you what I saw, but I am not alone. We'll get to that in just a moment. Now park that idea a second. Let's go to verse 2. For the life was made manifest. This is the word I want you to really focus on. And we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made, here it comes again, manifest to us. Twice in the same verse. Now manifest is not a modern word. I think Miss Mesh over here works in the shipping business and the freight business. And if I, if I got in a conversation with Miss Mesh and I said, manifest this, and she said, manifest that, we would both understand two different realities. I'd be using manifest this way, and she'd be talking about a piece of paper that contains a list of everything that's in the shipping container. To her, a manifest is an official a bill of lading. It's a document that has... Uh, pricing or quantities or inventory on it or some type of contractual business document that says here's what we're moving and here's what's in the container here's the manifest here's the inventory so manifest in the modern usage is that way we don't use manifest in the modern english the way john's using it so let me make a bit of an explanation here's a comparative uh, version so here he says The life was made manifest, ESV. God's Word. The life was revealed to us and we have seen it. The life appeared and we have seen it. The one who gives life appeared and we saw it happen. We are witnesses. This is the one who is life itself and it was revealed to us. So when John says twice in verse 2, the life was made manifest... In your margin of your uh, journal, write this. Manifest means revealed or appeared. And that's clear from the comparative that that's what John is saying. He's saying that which was from the beginning showed up. Turns out that which was from the beginning is actually a person. Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. But he showed up and he appeared. He was made manifest. He was revealed to us. 
So here's what John is saying. God's son was revealed or he appeared here on earth in the first century in the form of a specific person who was a real person with a real family, with a real home, from a real city, with real friends. And that person's name was Jesus of Nazareth. Now, this is important. And what John is actually doing is he's building the case for Christ now. He's saying that our beliefs about Christ's humanity, that he was a man, and deity, that he was God, are grounded in historic realities. The truth was testified to, not just by John, but by hundreds, hundreds of eyewitnesses many of whom wrote down their testimony in written depositions that we now are holding in our hand, and we call them the books of the Bible. The books of the Bible were written by eyewitnesses to these events. These written testimonies have survived now for thousands of years. You say, why is the Bible so revered? The writings have lasted for thousands of years. And they are further validated as the truth, not just because they've endured. They are further validated as the truth because these writings have changed people's lives, both in ancient and in modern cultures. The scriptures have changed our lives. The testimonies that these people have given, we've received their testimonies and their testimonies have been transformative to our lives. Now, this is why Christianity demands our intellectual respect. Christianity does not ask its followers to follow and believe on blind faith. Christianity demands intellectual respect because the written depositions to eyewitness testimony prove that it is true. The fact that those depositions have the power to change people's lives prove that it is truth. There are more than five hundred witnesses, eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ who would have gladly given you their testimony and their deposition. If you're journaling, right in the margin here, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 6, this is where Paul talks about the 500 witnesses, talks about Peter and James and John and himself and all, and he starts listing all of this in 1 Corinthians 15 as to who the eyewitnesses are, and he's telling the the Corinthian, the European Christians, if you would like to meet these eyewitnesses, I can certainly hook you up with them because most of them are still alive at this writing. Be glad to go to Israel. Wouldn't it be cool? See, we can't do that. Wouldn't it be cool to say, hey, let's go on a mission trip. I mean, let's go on a, a Holy Land tour. And this Holy Land tour, it's not much about seeing the sights, is we're going to the homes of the eyewitnesses, and we're going to go sit with them and let us tell the story through their own eyes of what they saw and what they experienced. That would be absolutely fascinating. Let's read verse 3 now. Watch, watch what John does now, and, and you'll know based on what I've told you, it'll all tie together here. That which we, we, notice this word, you may want to circle this, that which we, Wait, he starts talking. Wait, it's John writing a letter, and suddenly he switched to we. Who is he claiming to represent now? That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our 
fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. John is claiming to represent a group of more than 500 eyewitnesses. He's saying, we saw, we handled, we can tell you. Now these guys who are destroying the church and these people who are pulling away their own little kingdom of followers, I don't know about these people, but I can testify to the we group, we will speak about what we have seen and what we have heard. Now, when it comes to eyewitnesses, let me be very clear. Mary Magdalene was the first eyewitness and the first proclaimer of Jesus' resurrection. In the margin of your notes, write Matthew 28, verse number 10. And if you went to Matthew 28, you could read the whole narrative and you would see the conversation between Jesus and Mary Magdalene. She is the first witness to the resurrected Christ. And Jesus told Mary, you're going to be the first preacher of the gospel. That makes many of you nervous, that word. She's going to be the first proclaimer of the gospel. Maybe that makes you nervous. I'll give you another. She's going to be the first witness to testify of the risen Christ. Because as till now, no one knows he's risen from the dead. They're not even lined up looking for it. Only Mary's encountering him in the garden. And Jesus is telling her, I want you to go and tell the other disciples. Now the other disciples were eyewitnesses only to Jesus' life and death. Let that sink in. They were not witnesses to his resurrection at this point in the story. Only Mary was. And you can imagine this is so anti counterculture, counter everything to the ancient world and even maybe to the modern world wherever chauvinism and misogyny exists to write into the biblical story that Christ appeared to a woman and commissioned her to go tell the men that, she, that he had risen from the dead and she's like, no, I swear on a stack of Bibles, I just had a conversation with him in the garden. You can go see for yourself Well, they decided to. So John and Peter run down to the tomb. We'll talk about that on Easter Sunday to go see if indeed Mary is telling the truth. And sure enough, you know what they find? Nothing. Just what she told them. An empty tomb and a message from beyond the grave. That's all they found. And so Mary told them, go to Galilee. Jesus is going to meet with you. This is the message. He's risen. He says, everybody get together. He's going to come and meet with you personally so you can be an eyewitness of his resurrection as well. And sure enough, it happened. Later, they encountered the risen Christ, all of them. And they became eyewitness to the full story of the gospel. That he was was crucified according to scripture, buried, rose again, and that he was seen. So they, they eventually became full gospel witnesses, if you will but only in their order. Now, it's important. It is significant. Their proclamation, their testimony is significant to us this morning because theirs was the original proclamation, the original testimony of death, burial, and resurrection and witnessing of Jesus Christ. And their testimony became the foundation and the source for all subsequent proclamations of the gospel. In other words, you've never seen Jesus. You never got to go fishing with Jesus. You never got to have game night with Jesus. You never got to break bread with the risen Christ. But they did. And this morning, when you were proclaiming Christ, crucified, buried, risen again, and living, when you proclaimed the gospel, 
your proclamation is based on their proclamation. And you may say, well, I don't know how to feel about that. Feel good about it because they're eyewitnesses. They're eyewitnesses. That's why you feel good about it. We know about Christ because they told the story of their encounter with Christ. And their story has affected 2,000 years of, of human history in a very positive way. The world we live in today is nothing like the ancient world. We have human rights today. I mean, we treat people with different colors of skin as equals. We treat men and women as equals. We, everyone has the right to vote. You know what I'm I mean, everyone has respect. Everyone's treated with dignity. You know what did that? Christianity did that. Christianity did that. We have modern medicine. Christianity paved the way on this. We live in freedom. Christianity paved the way for the abolition of slavery and freedom for all people. Listen, Christianity's blessed this world in, in a million amazing ways. There's a whole book on this, How Christianity Changed the World. I highly recommend it. I'll get the author for you if anybody's interested. Be a great read for you to see how Christianity has affected the last 2,000 years of human history. But we came to believe on Christ because of their stories that were passed to us. But now something's changed, ladies and gentlemen. We also now, at this hour, have our own stories. Now, I first believed because of hearing their stories. But now that I've encountered Christ, I have my own story. And if you want to know, well, how has Christ changed your life? I could tell you my own story about here's who I was and here's what happened and here's how Christ has made me a different person and here's how I'm being transformed as a follower of Jesus Christ. And now what you're seeing is the apostles and the eyewitnesses did their part in their generation, but now they've passed the torch to us, and now we're called upon to proclaim the gospel in our own generation. And just as many people believed because of their testimony, many will come to know Christ when they hear your story. Now I could put this on you in a heavier way, and I could say to you how many people at your work, in your neighborhood, and in your friend circle don't know Christ because you've not shared him. But let me say it in the positive way, knowing you're, you're, you are people who are on mission for Christ. That may be a message I might give to another church. But since you're people on mission, I would say to you, listen, don't be afraid to tell your story about how Christ has changed your life. Because when you share your story, people will come to know Christ. This is how people come to know Christ. Because people who've had encounters with Christ tell their story. They publish it. They talk about Jesus Christ well, let me just maybe, I can feel a little tension rising in the room, and here does rise the tension now. A new tension arises when I talk about us sharing our faith. We're fine with them sharing their faith, but when I talk about us sharing our story in a modern generation, the tension rises always. And I understand why. Let me be very clear about this. Because the very idea of proclaiming your faith is challenged by the values of our present society and our culture. Uh, let me see if I can explain. Sharing your faith is often viewed in a negative light. Sharing your faith, not by you, but by the world. Sharing your faith is often viewed as a negative thing because the world says, you're imposing your religion on me. So it's seen as a negative thing to tell your story. Don't jam Jesus down my throat. Clearly articulating your beliefs can be interpreted in our modern culture as a form of intolerance 
towards those who have differing worldviews. The world, present culture world that we live in would say, yes, you Christians believe whatever you want to believe. Just keep it to yourself. Yes, believe whatever you want to believe. That's your right. This is America. Believe whatever you want to believe. Just keep it to yourself. And our culture creates an awkwardness in sharing our faith because it asks followers of Christ to confine their faith only to the private domain. In other words, worship here within the confines of your church, of your choice. Take that home and keep it in your home. But don't let Jesus escape from your home or your church and spill out into the rest of of our culture because we don't want you to impose that on us. Now listen, before you're too harsh with the world, you may think I'm being harsh with them, and I'm really not. I understand the pushback. You say, well, are you upset that the world views us this way? Not really. I don't know how else it would view us. It's never viewed us any otherwise throughout 2,000 years of Christianity. I understand the pushback on not wanting Christians out there articulating their faith. Because our faith claims that people are sinful. True? Our faith claims that our sinful condition requires forgiveness and a change of lifestyle. True? Can you see why this is unpopular? Can you see why there's pushback? Our faith claims that Jesus Christ is the only way to find the needed forgiveness of sins. True? I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but by me, he said. I am the door. If any man enters another way, the same is a thief and a robber trying to break into something you have no right to. You must come through the door. I am that door. Our faith claims that Jesus is the only way to find the forgiveness of sins which we need, thus rendering all other paths false and powerless. Yeah, I understand why the world wouldn't be thrilled about us proclaiming that message because it brings personal conviction. It shines light upon dark places of our culture and the darkness does not like to have the light shined on the dark places of culture or men and women don't like to have the light shined upon the dark places of our own hearts. I get it. But rather than hearing our proclamation as a life-changing message of God's mercy and God's love, our witness is often seen in a negative light. So if proclaiming our message about Jesus is now politically incorrect, then we have to find ways to engage the world which are less offensive. Well, you have options. I'll just put the options before you this morning, Cornerstone. Either you just go out those doors and say, The heck with it, I'm just going to offend everybody and tell them how it is. I want you to know we lose if you do that. If you go out there and offend our whole community, the gospel and the cause of Christ loses. Because no one will hear us. But if you serve and meet the needs of people and treat them with respect and love and are trying to communicate the witness of Christ in a way that's both intelligent and thoughtful and kind, you will win the day for Jesus Christ. Now, please hear what I'm saying. You're commanded to share your witness, 
The, test, the, the big takeaway in this is the church. When I say the church, sometimes we, it's not strong enough. Our church. Let's say our, let me say it a stronger way. Your church. Your church is given the corporate responsibility to promote and proclaim the gospel. Right? As a part of the church, each one of us has to work out how we're best going to fulfill our obligation to tell the story of Jesus Christ, to share the gospel, to get on mission in a successful way. How about that? So you know what we did? You know what we did to help you? To be a friend to you? The church? We created this event in a few weeks called Interactive Easter Experience. Is it coming together for you now? We created an event that's not offensive. We created an event where they don't have to sit in a church service and have a preacher scream at them. We created an event where you can touch things and interact with things and smell things and taste things and ride on things and you can hear the story of the cross and you can hear the story of Jesus and it's like putting a little cross-shaped stone in somebody's shoe and you let them walk around on that for a month and they'll notice that it's there pricking their conscience, if you would. And it opens the door for conversations. If you're wondering what we're doing with this event on Good Friday and the Saturday that follows, this is what we're doing. Now here's what I need you to do. Own it. You say, I know I need to fulfill my obligation as the church and share the gospel. Great, you've got an opportunity. Go out and snatch up about eight or ten of those time slots and, and uh, recruit some people to come with you. And say, come, there's a little thing, a very casual, just an interactive thing. Let's go to dinner and let's go through this interactive Easter experience. Nobody's going to preach at you. It's just a thing we do on Good Friday where we focus on the cross, what Jesus did for us on the cross. And uh, if you want, there's communion after, and you don't have to take it if you don't want. But there's a, it's all it is. It's a Good Friday. It's a Saturday Easter experience. What I'm saying to you is as our American society becomes increasingly post-Christian, as our society becomes increasingly intolerant of Christian proclamation, it will become more and more difficult to fulfill your obligation to share your faith. Does that make sense? It's going to get harder the more America goes post-Christian to be open in the public world, not in here and not in your home, but in the public forum of work, school, the marketplace. It's going to get harder and harder to be open about your faith and more and more the New Testament church, we are going to have to figure out how to approach living out our faith as those who are living in exile. Now, this may be a new phrase for you. Those who are living in exile. The modern church is going to have to adopt a mentality that we are now like the Christians of other places and other eras. We now have to view our world as if we are Christians in exile, we are now going to be the minority. How do we live out our faith when the tables now are turned? Pastor David's working up a whole series. I think you'll see it around May, late May or June. A whole series is coming on faith in exile. How Christians mentally need to approach the coming changing world. And how we need to begin to think about living out our faith with a new mindset of we are Christians in exile. That mindset is not a new thing, by the way. This is not some newfangled concept. 
This is actually the historical norm of most of the people who have ever followed Christ in the last 2,000 years. It actually is the norm of many Old Testament saints like Daniel and Jeremiah and all of these, all of these great Christians. From a historical point of view, we have discovered now that persecution has never silenced the church. That persecution actually has added fuel to the fire. And that Christianity actually flourishes in the soil of persecution. Now John is asserting that he is an eyewitness. What exactly did John witness concerning Jesus Christ? It's a little question, just a little side question you need to ask yourself. What exactly did John witness concerning Jesus Christ? I'll give you some options. A, he might be saying uh, that I witnessed the incarnation of Jesus. I witnessed that God became man. Maybe what he's saying, and that's plausible, and it fits with the text. That's correct. He may be saying, B, I was a witness to the greater ministry of Jesus. I watched him raise the dead. I watched him raise Lazarus. I watched him raise the little girl. I saw him transfigured. I saw the miracles. I saw him feed the 5,000. I saw him walk on the water. He may be speaking about the, the miracles and the ministry of Christ. That's very plausible and it fits. Or C, and this is really what I think he's saying, that John is speaking of all of that comprehensively. That John is saying, I'm an eyewitness both to the life ministry of Jesus, but also to his death, but especially the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And I'll tell you why I think that. Because in Acts chapter 4 verse 33, this was the apostles' message in the first century. Here's what it says. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to what? The resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Because it's the resurrection that really proves what the cross did for you. It's the resurrection that proves who that person wasn't just a criminal, wasn't just a man dying for his own crimes. The resurrection proves that it was the Son of God dying for the sins of the world. When Paul wrote to the Roman Christians, in Europe, he said this, that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Paul said that's the big I told you so of world history right there. When he rose from the grave, that was God saying, see, I told you I was the Son of God. I'm not just a carpenter from Galilee. All right, here we are in verse 4. And we are writing these things... So that our joy may be complete. Now, it's John's joy to testify about Jesus Christ as a witness. So I want you to apply this personally now. It is our joy to speak of Christ. I think we are like the Samaritan woman at the well. Who when she met Jesus Christ, it was her joy. And it was her desire. And it was her natural response to go to the city to her friends and acquaintances and proclaim the gospel. It is the natural reaction of those who have come into the fellowship of Jesus Christ. What we're learning from John is there are two actions that generate joy in the life of every believer. Sharing the gospel and sharing our lives. If you're struggling with personal joy... There are two actions that generate joy in the life of a believer. Sharing the gospel, being a witness to Christ, and then that fellowship aspect, sharing your life with someone else. So now, I'm going to summarize these four verses. The big idea of 
verses 1 through 4, is that the truth about Jesus begins with you understanding he's an actual person in human history who chose witnesses to explain the significance of his life, death, and resurrection. And everyone who's reading this letter is invited to join in fellowship with other believers who are also following this same truth about who Jesus is. God wants us to have fellowship with each other and with himself because God is foremost a God of relationships. He's very different than the Greek and Roman gods and the idol gods who are there but don't really know you and don't really care. They're just waiting for you to step out of line or just play games with you or whatever. Jesus Christ is very different. God wants a personal relationship with you. And here's what we're learning from John. We're learning that we cannot share eternal life in an individualistic way. We cannot share life if we are removed from the fellowship of the Christian community any more than we can possess eternal life apart from a personal fellowship and relationship with Jesus Christ as our Savior. You must be in fellowship with Him for eternal life and you must be in fellowship with the other believers for joy, for human life to have value and the full meaning of what God wanted you to have. Now, we enter the God is light section now. For those of you who I gave the outline to, verse 5 starts the God is light section. Give me five minutes and I'll run you through it. Here we go, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him. Now, John said, I've been telling you my message, but now the message I'm about to proclaim is directly from Jesus. This is what he told us and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. This whole section on God is light uses two metaphors to frame Christian fellowship, the metaphor of light and darkness. If you can get this little section, a lot of the Bible is going to make a lot of sense to you. Fellowship involves truth and confession of sin. That's what it means to be walking in the light. And with deception and claims to be without sin, that's what it means to walk in darkness. The message that John heard from Christ was that God is fellowship with God is directly connected to a message that God is light. Now, I won't have time to go through references. They're in version. Our first recorded words of God, not the first thing he ever said, the first thing we recorded him is ever saying, let there be light. The opening words of Genesis. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. It's his very attribute he's now sending into the universe. The psalmist said, we see light because he gives us light. We abide in, the psalmist said, we are wrapped in, uh, that God takes light and he wraps it around him as a garment. Psalm 104, 1 and 2. In John's gospel, gospel now, not the letter, Jesus is presented to us as the personification of God. God as a person. God in a human body. So John spoke of Jesus, not surprisingly. Here's what John said. This is the true light which gives light to everyone when John spoke of Jesus, God coming into the world, he shot him with the light metaphor quickly and said, I want you to know that Jesus is light, the true light, which lights everyone. He's giving Jesus the attributes of Almighty God. John is saying there is a person, we know God is light, but there is a person who is light, 
and his name is Jesus. John is saying to us, Jesus is the very personification of God, the very embodiment of God. 1 John 1.6 If we say that we have fellowship with him, this God of light, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, what do we do? We lie and do not practice truth. So let me summarize. To have fellowship with God and walk in darkness are mutually exclusive ideas. You cannot put those together. To claim the first while doing the second, to claim to walk with God while you're actually living in darkness is to lie. It is to self-deceive. You're living in self-deception. All right, now we get to the really good stuff. Look at verse 7. I want you to make a star in the margin of your Bible or your journal, an arrow. Some big notation needs to go here like a beaming sign to you. If you want to memorize a great verse, this is your verse. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If you're going to memorize a verse, memorize that one. Walking in the light is a metaphor for living according to the truth and confessing our sin. Since living this way, walking in the light, is essential for fellowship with God, then we also have fellowship with one another in the church and we are all united by our common walk in the light and by our common confession of our sins. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, do you see the implications? We've deceived ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, you should be answering my opening questions in your mind right now. What do you say to a world who says there is no sin? You take them to 1 John chapter 1, to the eyewitnesses and the 2,000 years of testimony and the changed lives where people have said this throughout history. This is not a new, modern, cool thing. John's people, people in his world, said the same thing in 100 A.D., You know what John answered them as an eyewitness to the testimony of Jesus? If we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Next to verse number 9, I want you to put a star in your margin. If you're ever going to memorize a verse, this is the verse to memorize, Christian, right here. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness for sake of time just let me summarize and not go on a great profound explanation here when we confess our sins we have an absolute promise from almighty God that we will receive his forgiveness and his cleansing and when you confess your sins to God and ask for forgiveness God is faithful on the grounds of the blood of Jesus Christ which was shed for your sins God is faithful to forgive you and to fully cleanse you of your sin. I can't tell you in 40-something years of being a follower of Christ how many times I've come to 1 John 1, 9 for my comfort when I have messed up that I could confess my sins and know that God is not angry with me, that my sins are under the blood, And God and I are walking in light and fellowship 
together. Verse number 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. Now John ties verse number 10 to verse number 8. They are linked, draw an arrow and link them together. What John is saying is that when you say you haven't sinned or there is no sin or deny the reality of personal sin, when you deny the reality of sin, you are living both in self-deception and you are making God a liar. So the big idea of these verses is simply this. Verses 5 through 10 are about this. That God alone has the authority to define the standard of morality or spirituality. That God alone defines the standard that is necessary to have fellowship with Him. And whatever that standard or state is, John refers to it as walking in the light. Sin is the opposite of that standard. It is a violation of God's relational terms. And sin makes fellowship with God impossible. It's a state that John calls walking in darkness. John is saying that God sent his son into human history as a real man to die an atoning death on the cross and his death would provide cleansing and a restoration of fellowship with God the Father. Therefore, any claims that deny sin calls God a liar. And calling God a liar would, in essence, be the very definition of sin, would it not? You say, well, I've never sinned. Well, you just called God a liar, and that's sin. You see what John's saying. Uh, by calling God a liar, you have done exactly what you claim to be free from. So here's what we're learning. What we're learning is that our fellowship with God must at the forefront be honest. You can't say, I don't have any sin. I'm good. No, you've got to be honest with God at the very core of your relationship. And, and he's challenging you to get real. Now, again, let me cycle one more time because I want to get this metaphor really in your mind. There are two ways of living, ladies and gentlemen, walking in the light or walking in darkness. Walking in darkness is characterized by deception and the rejection of the truth of who Jesus is. Walking in the light puts us in fellowship with God and with other believers, and that fellowship with God is characterized by truth, confession of sin, and then the following forgiveness and fellowship that follow that confession of sin and fellowship with God. As believers, and let me close with this, as believers we are sometimes so ashamed of our failures that we find it difficult to bring our failures to the Lord in confession. And I just want to challenge all of you this morning. There's nothing to be gained by pretending. God already knows. But you have everything to gain through confession and repentance. Namely, fellowship with God and with God's people. If you're journaling still, write Psalm 51 in your margin. Everyone who is not in a Bible reading plan, read Psalm 51 this week. It's David's confession. You say, well, he was a great saint. What did he do? Well, let's see. He stole somebody's wife, conceived a child out of wedlock, 
didn't tell the husband, tried to cover it up, couldn't cover it up, got the husband drunk, tried to get him to go home and sleep with his wife so the husband wouldn't know it was David's baby instead of the husband's baby. The husband, being a righteous man, wouldn't go home drunk because the soldiers were in the field and he said, how can I go sleep in my bed with my wife while my men are out in the field? And so David said, put him out in the front of the battle and everybody retreat but him and don't tell him what we're going to do. David murdered him. So when you say... When you say, what did David do? Everything. He did everything. <laughs> he did everything. Listen to his prayer of confession in Psalm 51. And listen to the words as you sense the emotions shift in the psalm. And David start feeling renewed fellowship, forgiveness, restoration. And then watch what David starts doing. Then he starts proclaiming and testifying the gospel. I mean, he starts preaching God. Starts testifying to the goodness of God once his sins are forgiven. So here's what John's saying. He's teaching believers to reject false teaching about our secular, that our secular society promotes because sin does exist. It does exist. And the power of sin is real. Sin's addictive. Its power is real. It gets a hold of you and you can't get out of its grasp except through the blood of Jesus Christ. The power of sin is real. And sin has vicious, vicious consequences. Now I'm going to set you up for the coming weeks and go ahead and answer the question you're asking. Yes, Christians still commit sins after we're saved. Yes, we do. Talk about it next week. We don't pursue it as a lifestyle. We're not got our day planner out saying, okay, let's see, adultery on Tuesday, and robbery on Wednesday, and we give somebody a good cussing on Thursday. And, uh, you know what I'm saying, when I get to work, I'm going to just, you know, steal something, chew this guy out, kick, kick, yeah, no. Christians don't practice it as a lifestyle, but let me just say to you, sin sneaks up on us and gets a hold of us if we're not careful. And yes, Christians commit sins. And, and here's what I want to say, because this is a big doctrine that's being going around in your generation. If I had to write a modern epistle, the first book of Bobby, I would have to say to my generation... The people that are telling you you don't have to confess your sins are hurting you because that's a modern teaching right now that's sweeping through the churches. Let, let me just say it like this, and I'm going to wrap. Christians still commit sins, but we have to create a community that openly acknowledges that Christians struggle with sin. Our members here, in case you're wondering, still struggle with addiction and lying and pornography and abusive behaviors and envy and improper dress and pride and, and, and every sin that's in the book. We struggle with all of them. And we must here at Cornerstone maintain an environment of openness where we can confess our sins and find accountability in our community of this church until with God's empowering and with God's help we can break the bondage of our sinful behaviors and overcome them. We have to have an openness in this church where we don't say, well, I don't have any sin. But that's the way churches are acting right now. So let me just speak for our church. We have a lot of sin. We don't seek to practice it, but we have a lot we're dealing with in our own lives. And we're going to maintain an open environment here where it's okay to talk about it, and it's okay to find help, and it's okay to find accountability in this congregation until by the power of the Holy Spirit we have grown to overcome those sinful behaviors. 
We are reluctant to confess our sins because we're uncomfortable confronting our failures. And perhaps if we did it corporately, we could open the door for more personal confession. Let me seriously close now. In Europe, some, some of you are over very old-fashioned, and I respect that. And you long for the old ways, and you long for the old styles, and you long to go back to the days of yore. Fantastic. Let's go right now in 30 seconds. I was reading through some very old writings in the past weeks preparing for this, and I stumbled across a practice in the old Christian churches of Europe. Your forefathers, spiritually, practiced a thing in many of their churches called corporate confession. And before you think that's weird, go read Jeremiah and those guys, Daniel, they practiced national confession, where the prophets would confess the sins for the whole nation. You see those guys get on their knees and say, God, Israel has sinned, and start articulating the sins and asking for forgiveness as if they represented the nation. But the old churches of Europe used to practice a thing called corporate confession. And as I was thinking about this and praying about this and looking at what these old churches did, I said, you know, if, if every once in a while the churches in America practiced this, it would blow up that heresy that we don't have sin to deal with. So let's practice it as we close. Let's stand together. I'll show you what it looks like. Uh, it's a prayer. It's a prayer uh, from an old prayer book. This is your prayer. And like any prayer, it means absolutely nothing if you don't mean it. Is that, is that fair? It means nothing if you don't feel it. So together, let's pray this prayer of corporate church confession this morning. Paul's at the punctuation just for a breath, okay? Here we go. Merciful God, our maker and judge, we have sinned against you in thought, in word, and in deed. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We repent. We are sorry for our sins. Father, please forgive us. Strengthen us to love you and obey you in newness of life through Christ our Lord. And the pastor would reply, Almighty God, who has promised forgiveness of sins to all who turn to him in faith, that God pardon you and set you free from your sins and strengthen you to do his will and keep you in eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. You know what I'm saying? That's corporate confession. Our heads are bowed. In this closing moment, take that prayer and build on it for 30 seconds. Father, we have sinned. And Father, I confess that I have not loved you with my whole heart. I have not loved my neighbor as myself. Father, forgive me of my sins. And while you're praying this morning, I'm going to remind you of what John just wrote in 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. And as a minister of the gospel, I can tell you on the authority of the word of God this morning, if you pray that prayer with sincerity, your sins are forgiven they are forgiven 
What would you say to your own heart if your heart would not let go the fact that you had done something wrong? Christian, you would quote 1 John 1, 9 to your own heart and you would say to your own conscience, let it go. Your name here. Let it go, Bobby. You have confessed it and God has cleansed it. You are forgiven. Now go and walk in light and in fellowship with God. That is the teaching of 1 John. God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. And I pray that this week you would walk in the light of fellowship. Father, I just want to pray over our people this morning before they go to enjoy a vacation week. God, thank you for the promise of forgiveness. Lord, we just pull those verses into our heart right now and claim them. Thank you for fellowship restored. Thank you, Father, that when we sin, you don't disinherit us or kick us out of the family, but you're just waiting for us to confess our sin, that close fellowship might be restored. Lord, thank you for the willingness of the men and women here to hear your word this morning and to practice that confession that brings fellowship. That is walking in the light. And Lord, we're going to leave here walking in your light this morning. Thank you for your promises. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's sing a happy song and let's go home and enjoy our weekend.